True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 52, Part 4, The Van Breda Family Murders. In case you're wondering, yes, this is the last part in the series. I know that many of you have been waiting for the last part to binge all four, so you can go ahead and do that now. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Siobhan Gerstner, Jason, and Tanya Mateus for their support on Patreon, as well as Sarah Diaga for her support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaway running with King Online, where if you purchase 400 rand or more and use the TCSA10 code, you get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 rands worth of brand new release, true crime and crime fiction books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. In the last episode, we discussed the significant injuries to the three deceased victims, as well as the injuries to Marley van Breda. We know that Henry was also injured, and I described his injuries earlier in this series of episodes. There's no doubt that the injuries suffered by Henry were far less severe than those of his family members. According to his own evidence, he was not struck by the axe at any time, and all of his incised injuries were inflicted by the knife. Two witnesses would testify for the state as to the nature of Henry's wounds. Dr. Marion Temensma is a specialist forensic pathologist and clinical forensic practitioner that was employed at the clinical forensic unit at Victoria Hospital in Weinberg at the time of her testimony. Professor Johann Dempers was head of the clinical unit of the Division of Forensic Medicine at the University of Stellenbosch, the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Tigerberg, and also served as a consultant for the Western Cape government. Both of these expert witnesses testified to similar evidence. The doctors believed that the four incised wounds on Henry's left forearm and the two above his left nipple were undoubtedly self-inflicted. They based this evidence on documented research around the nature of self-inflicted injuries 
as well as their own experience with seeing both the victims of actual knife attacks and people that presented with injuries they'd inflicted on themselves. The superficial nature of these wounds, as well as the uniformity, supported the fact that they were not inflicted during a struggle, but rather while Henry was standing still. The wounds on Henry's forearm were all almost exactly the same length and evenly spaced. The doctors also found that the wounds seemed to avoid sensitive areas of the body, like the nipple and the thinner skin on the inside of the arm. Dr. Temensma took into account Henry's version of how the altercation had taken place and said that it was impossible for him to have received wounds on his forearm if he was positioned in the manner he said he was. None of the wounds presented as defensive wounds, and there were no wounds on Henry's hands, which is something that both doctors said they would expect to see in a knife attack. As for the stab wounds, Dr. Temensma said that although they were suspiciously superficial, she could not say for sure that they were self-inflicted. Professor Dempers would say that he was willing to say it was more likely, considering all the circumstances at hand and the nature of the injuries to the other victims, that the stab wounds could indeed also be self-inflicted, but he was not as certain of that as he was of the other incised wounds. Henry's claim that the knife had stayed inside the deepest of his wounds and that he had to remove it himself was refuted by both experts. They both said that the wound at a depth of 10 millimeters would only pierce the subcutaneous fat layer under the skin, and there was no way that the knife would be held in place by such a wound. Although I don't see it mentioned anywhere, I do wonder whether this statement was a way for Henry to be able to explain his fingerprints on the knife. That according to his version, he should not otherwise have been in contact with. Henry is right-handed, and almost all of his incised wounds are on the left-hand side of his body. He did say, however, that his attacker was also right-handed. Henry also had other wounds, though, that the expert witnesses said were likely not self-inflicted. This included the bruise and the swelling on his forehead, the scratches on his back, and the bruise and swelling on the inside of his leg. These injuries, Dr. Temensma said, were likely as a result of either blunt force trauma caused by a blow to the face or a fall. The scratches may have been as a result of contact with a rough surface during a fall or fingernail scratches. Although I'm certainly no expert and we don't have any information about the spacing of the two scratches on Henry's back, the alternating lengths and the fact that there were only two lead me to believe that these were probably not caused by fingernails. One of the scratches was 60 millimeters long and the other 200 millimeters long. While we don't actually know that these scratches were made on the night of the murders, if they were, it would seem more likely that they happened either during a struggle, when Henry had been pushed up against something with force, or perhaps during a fall. I haven't seen the edge of the stairs in the Funbradar house, but looking at photographs of similar homes in the estate, they all seem to have a tiled edge, 
which, at least in my mind, could possibly cause scratches if you fell against them. Henry's explanation for the bruise on his head would be that he must have hit his head when he fell down the stairs. This, of course, is entirely possible, and the state does not refute that Henry may have fallen down the stairs at some point. The bruise under Henry's left eye, according to the expert witnesses, may have been caused by either a fall or a punch. If the bruised eye had come from a fall down the stairs, I would expect to see other facial injuries too. Damage to the nose bridge, for instance, or broken skin accompanying the bruise on the eye, if it was caused by his face connecting with the stairs. We know that Marley fought back ferociously against her attacker. If her attacker was indeed Henry, and she'd punched him, if we allow for the assumption that she may be right-handed, it would make sense that she would connect with him in his left eye. These injuries, and the alleged fall down the stairs, would be discussed by another expert who would testify in Henry's defence, and his testimony would be rather unexpected. On the 8th of November 2017, while Henry was out on bail during his trial, he was sitting on a bed in a hotel room with his girlfriend, Danielle Janse van Feren. They'd been discussing the case, when Danielle says that Henry suddenly stopped talking, leaned forward on his bed, and then fell backward. She says that his arms and legs started to shake, and his eyes rolled back in his head. The seizure lasted for about a minute, and Danielle says that when Henry came round, he did not know what had happened, and acted like a drunk person. Danielle called her father, and he arranged for Henry to see Dr. James Butler the next day. Dr. James Butler is highly qualified and respected in his field. He is a neurologist in private practice, but he specializes in epilepsy and works with the Epilepsy Research Unit at Mediclinic Constantiaberg. Dr. Butler explained that his initial interaction with Henry started, as he would with any patient, by taking a verbal history from him to understand what type of seizure-like incidents he'd experienced. Henry explained what had happened the day before and how he had felt. Danielle was also present to give her recollection of the incident, which would give Dr. Butler valuable information about the seizure. Henry then told Dr. Butler that he'd experienced another similar event in February 2016. He'd also been talking about the case with his girlfriend, and had then lost consciousness. On that day, he'd had six glasses of wine, and they'd put the incident down to him having been intoxicated. Henry also told the doctor about his unexplained loss of consciousness on the day his family had been murdered. Dr. Butler would include in this history a record of alcohol consumed around this period, stress levels, whether the patient had been sleeping well, and also whether any other medication was present in the system. According to Henry, the only other substance in his system on these occasions, besides alcohol, were the antidepressants he was prescribed with in February 2015, a month after the murders. Dr. Butler told the court that in assessing Henry, he was looking to determine whether the young man would fit into one of three categories. 
Firstly, he could be suffering from psychogenic, non-epileptic seizures. According to the doctor, this happens when a person experiences significant emotional trauma, and as a coping mechanism, the brain reduces blood flow to the organ, causing unconsciousness and often memory loss of the traumatic events. The second option was that Henry could be suffering from some form of epilepsy, and he had experienced epileptic seizures. And the third option was that Henry was malingering. Malingering is a deliberate and conscious effort to fake a mental or physical disorder. While Dr. Butler said that he would not have taken the fact that Henry was a murder accused into account in his diagnosis, he did have to accept that Firstly, the stress of the last few years would be adding to his epilepsy, if indeed he had epilepsy, and he'd also had to take this into account when he was considering whether Henry may be malingering. At the first consultation, Henry was put onto an EEG for 20 minutes. An EEG measures electrical brain waves. The results of this test were presented in court and it showed normal activity with no spikes. Dr. Butler decided to book Henry into the mediclinic for 24 hours the next day, and conducted an EEG for that entire period. The results of this test showed a 10-second period of abnormal electrical activity in his brain. Henry was also recorded on video during this period, and an abnormal jerking of his thumb as well as his arm, was observed. Taking the results of this test into account, as well as the history obtained from Henry, he diagnosed the young man with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. This form of epilepsy is known to developing people in their early 20s. Now I must say that when I heard this evidence, I felt like a lot had fallen into place. Before I knew about this testimony and diagnosis by Dr. Butler, when I first started to research this case, two things stood out to me. The first was the way Henry spoke on the phone, which to me sounded as though he was drunk. Of course, there were a lot of statements about whether he smelled like alcohol on the morning of the murders, and although Henry would admit he had consumed alcohol the night before, there really is no evidence to prove that he had been intoxicated that night or on the morning of the murders. Yes, he had consumed alcohol, but we do not know for sure how much of a role that played in his behaviour that night or the next morning. The second thing that stood out to me before I knew about Dr. Butler's testimony was the fact that Henry had wet himself. The point at which this urination occurred is not entirely certain. There was an eyewitness, mentioned in Julian Janssen's book, that claimed to have seen Henry with urine running down his leg while he was on the phone outside the house on the morning of the murders. Before I knew about the epilepsy evidence, I'd actually wondered if he hadn't wet himself because he was highly intoxicated. I then also considered the possibility of a seizure of some kind, and researched whether there were any recorded incidents of severe mental illness, which combined with violent outbursts and possible loss of control over the bladder. Yes, that is how deep my research goes sometimes.
I did find one case in which a man had committed murder, but it was after an epileptic seizure, not before it, and the case was in 1808, so I don't think the science used can really be relied upon today. Captain Marius Hubert confirmed that the urine was deposited onto Henry's pants after the blood was, which means that Henry's family members were already bleeding when he wet himself. That, at least, tells us that it happened after the attacks and not during or before. Having considered the possibility of a seizure and then seeing Dr. Butler's evidence, I suddenly felt that there was something to this. It also made me think back to that rumour that did the round right in the beginning, that Henry had been sent home from university because he had a brain tumour. This, of course, was proven to be false, and Dr. Butler found no such tumour. The judge worked through Dr. Butler's diagnosis, questioning why he would make a diagnosis based on 10 seconds of brain activity over a 24-hour period. Dr. Butler explained that this is often the case, and he's done so much work with people living with epilepsy that with the history combined with what he'd seen in the tests, he was as confident with his diagnosis in this case as he had ever been. He did admit, however, that when he first learned of these circumstances that Henry found himself in, he did suspect that the young man was malingering. Considering the fact that Henry had reported each of the seizures happening after he'd been discussing the case, or after the event itself, Dr. Butler also seriously considered the possibility that Henry's seizures were psychogenic, in other words, caused by trauma and not actually by epilepsy. When he saw the irregular electrical activity in his brain, though, he realised that this could not be the case. Dr. Butler would also go on to say that much of the behaviour that he'd heard reported from Henry after the murders fit with his experience of how epilepsy patients react after a seizure. The way that he sounded slightly intoxicated on the phone, his calm demeanour, and even the fact that he did not react the way others expected, could all have been as a result of the after-effects of a seizure, Dr. Butler said. Henry, on the other hand, had not reported feeling foggy or dizzy during this time, and he reported his thinking as clear, although panicked. Dr. Butler believed that Henry's seizures were sparked by a combination of alcohol consumption, stress, and lack of sleep, which he had also reported in all the seizures he alleged to have experienced. There were, unfortunately, moments of very clear cognition in Henry after the loss of consciousness, which Dr. Butler could not conclusively say fit the postictal state, which is common after a seizure. He seemed to swing between very clear cognition about certain things, his texts and Google searches post-loss of consciousness were clearer and better crafted than before, for instance. And with other things, he seemed to have poor cognitive ability. Dr. Butler would say that without a witness to the state, it is very difficult to say how compromised he was. As for the long period of unconsciousness, 
Dr. Butler again said that he could not conclusively say that it was impossible for Henry to be unconscious for two hours and 40 minutes after his first major seizure. Henry, by his own account, had stayed in the same position on the stairs for that entire period of time. Dr. Butler said that it was possible that he'd had a seizure and then lay either unconscious or barely conscious for the rest of the period. He conceded, however, that for the most part, seizures that last more than a few minutes are considered to be grave medical emergencies, and that it would be unlikely that a patient would suffer an extremely long seizure and be able to get up, walk around, and engage cognitively, even at the level Henry did, without medical intervention. When asked whether it was possible that Henry had committed the murders and then had a seizure afterwards, Dr. Butler testified that it was absolutely possible and that his diagnosis would not preclude Henry from having committed the acts. It only served to possibly explain the missing hours. He did say that he would find it strange that any significant planning had happened in Henry's head directly after the seizure, but he could well have done the planning before and recalled his plans after the seizure. These self-inflicted injuries would have had to have happened before the seizure, though, according to Dr. Butler. The court would accept that Henry van Bredaar had indeed been diagnosed with epilepsy by Dr. Butler, and that it was very likely that Henry had a seizure in November 2017, on the day before he saw Dr. Butler for the first time. The court would not accept that anyone could conclusively say that he had indeed had a seizure on the day of the murders, nor that it caused him to be unconscious for two hours and 40 minutes. The judge would also say that, really, it made no difference to the act itself. Even if Henry had a seizure and was unconscious for so long, it didn't mean that he didn't commit the murders. Looking at the evidence and probabilities, in my opinion, I do think that Henry suffers from epilepsy. If it is possible that Henry had a seizure that morning, he must have had it much later than he said he did. I also think that he was not unconscious for as long as he said he was. I think if Henry had a seizure, and his slurring and some of the other things we saw were indeed part of a post-ictal state, that seizure had to have happened much closer to 7 a.m., than 4.30 a.m. If he had attacked his family and then gone downstairs, fiddled around on his cell phone for a bit and then gone back upstairs, when would the injuries that were conclusively proven to be self-inflicted have occurred? The knife with which Henry's injuries was caused was found slightly underneath Rudy's bed, and it would become the focus of another piece of blood spatter evidence from Captain Marius Hubert. Henry claimed that after the attacker had stabbed him, he'd pulled the knife out of his side and thrown it on the floor. But the blood evidence said something very different. Spatters of blood and a clot of blood were found on the knife, and the blood was not Henry's, it was Rudy's. 
So how, if Henry claims Rudy was on the bed when the attacker inflicted the injuries on Henry's body, and he was the last person to be holding the knife, did blood from Rudy come to be on the knife? It was already proven by several experts that Rudy Fumbradar would not have been capable of getting out of bed and crawling over to where his body was eventually found. The blood evidence proved that he was dragged as well. Henry says that the attacker left the room and the house after the knife had landed on the floor. So if Rudy was dragged, and Henry claims he didn't drag him, when did that blood become deposited on the knife? For Henry's version to be true, the attacker would have had to have run back into the house without him being seen, dragged Rudy's body out of the bed, deposited the blood on the knife, and run back outside. Clearly, that is a highly unlikely scenario. Another part of the blood evidence also makes this unlikely. The duvet that had been on Henry's bed was found rolled up into a ball and deposited near Rudy's body. The defence would say that this must have happened when Rudy was crawling across the room, but Captain Marius Hubert testified in court that the duvet had been deposited over the drag marks that had been caused by Rudy's body. This means that the duvet had to have been taken from the bed, bundled up, and placed where it was found after Rudy's body had ceased its dragging motion. When Captain Hubert unrolled the duvet, he also found that there was spatter on it, with a void in the middle, indicating that the duvet had been on Henry's bed while Rudy and Martin were being attacked, and that the void had likely been caused by the person attacking them. Captain Hubert also found a transfer stain on the duvet, which showed that the knife, covered in Rudy's blood, had been placed onto Henry's duvet while it was still on his bed. Again, this contradicts Henry's testimony of the attacker having fled the room after they got into a scuffle. He clearly said he'd thrown the knife on the floor. So from this pattern of evidence, and given the fact that Henry's account of what happened in the room cannot be true, what could have happened to create this evidence? If Henry van Bredaar had indeed been the murderer, and he'd attacked Rudy, his father, his mother, and Marley, he likely stayed upstairs after this happened. He may have gone back into the bedroom, and using the knife inflicted the wounds upon himself. It is difficult to say whether the knife became covered in Rudy's blood before or after Henry inflicted the wounds on himself, but at some point it was dropped in a significant amount of his blood and then thrown onto Henry's duvet. I do think that it is likely this happened before he inflicted the wounds on himself, and after he did, he dropped it to the floor, where it would later be found. By his own evidence, Rudy was still gurgling in an attempt to breathe at this point. Henry may have been concerned that his brother would survive or possibly still enraged from the attack and dragged him from his bed, depositing the splatter and clot onto the knife and leaving the drag marks behind. The blood on Rudy's bed had already started to clot when he was moved though. 
which indicates some passage of time between events. When Henry had dumped his brother's body face down on the floor, perhaps hoping that this would hasten the suffocation process, he may have noticed the blood on his own duvet and pulled it off, bundled it up, and dumped it on the floor near his brother's body. Stories differ, versions change, but physical evidence does not lie, and there was a person actively moving Rudy, the knife and the duvet around in that bedroom after the attacks took place. Henry says the attacker was no longer there, so who else could have done those things? Henry says that after the attacker had fled the room, he had chased after him with the axe, and not being able to catch up to him, he'd flung the axe from the top of the stairs, and it had hit the wall next to the first landing, blade first, causing a mark on the wall, and then fell onto the stairs. This version would be tested by both Captain Candace Brown, a ballistics expert with the SAPS, and Captain Marius Hubert. According to Captain Brown's testimony, the probability that an ordinary wooden chopping axe would strike blade first when randomly thrown was 25%. She also looked at the depth of the mark and how far the particles of plaster had scattered on the stairs. From this evidence, she testified that in her opinion, it was highly unlikely that the axe had been thrown from the top of the stairs. Rather, the marks on both the wall and the axe indicated that the axe had been hit against the wall in a controlled motion. Captain Hubert would also testify to the blood cast-off that had resulted from the axe hitting the wall. According to Henry's testimony, the axe should have been soaked in blood at this point. Firstly, in my opinion, that would have made wielding it accurately quite difficult. But also, Captain Hubert stated that if the axe had been thrown from the top of the stairs and had been covered in the blood of Henry's family members, he would have expected to have seen very different cast-off patterns along the length of the stairs as the axe flew through the air and blood left its surface. There was no such blood spatter present. Instead, the blood from the axe had been cast off onto the wall around the chip mark, in a pattern that indicated a controlled action. In other words, the person wielding the axe had been standing in front of the wall and slammed it into the surface with a controlled action, and then let it drop to the floor where it was later found. The defence did present their own witness that testified that Captain Brown's evidence was based on too much assumption, but no evidence was brought to refute the blood evidence. One of the major sticking points of this case is the fact that Henry Fumbradar was not covered from head to toe in his family's blood. The scene was extremely bloody, and one would expect him to have a lot more blood on him than he did. One thing I discovered while reading up on this evidence was that the boxer shorts that Henry is photographed in in the ambulance were not the only thing he was wearing when police arrived at the scene. The shorts he is wearing and the picture the public would have seen look really clean, but he was actually wearing another pair of grey shorts over his boxes, as well as the socks I've mentioned, 
which were taken by police on the scene. Those shorts, which Henry admitted he had been wearing at the time of the incident, told a very different tale in terms of blood evidence. Henry van Breda's shorts had 67 different bloodstains on them. His socks had 17 bloodstains on them. The majority of the stains were shown to be spatter stains, which meant that the blood was deposited on the shorts while the injuries were being incurred, and not by transfer, which would be the case if a person had checked on or touched an injured person. The DNA all belonged to Rudy, Martin and Teresa. The majority came from Rudy. Captain Hubert would testify that the spatter had impacted the shorts from close proximity, and the blood had moved through several layers of fibre. The shape, placement and depth of the spatter on the shorts indicated that Henry was close to the blood source and also facing the blood source. Henry's version was that when the attack on Rudy had started, he had been partially hidden behind the bathroom door. Later, when the attack on his father had taken place, he'd moved between his bed and the bathroom door. We know that there was indeed enough velocity on the blood from Rudy to reach Henry's bed. In fact, at a site visit during the trial, it would be found that one spot of blood had travelled out the window and landed on the neighbour's wall. Had Henry initially been behind the door, though, one would expect only a small portion of his shorts to have blood stains on them, and not both legs and the waistband. You would also expect to see the blood spatter around the door frame and the wall, which was not there. So unless the blood spatter somehow changed direction in mid-flight and focused its trajectory through the small crack in the door, none of it should have been on Henry. By his own evidence, by the time Henry emerged from the bathroom completely, the attacker had stopped attacking Rudy and was now attacking Martin. So the only blood from Rudy moving around at that time would be cast off from the axe. But the stains on his shorts were not cast off. They were impact spatter from the source. Even if Henry's defense was able to explain the spatter from Rudy, they could not explain the spatter from Teresa. Again, by his own evidence, Henry remained in the bedroom while his mother was being attacked, so how would he come to have blood spatter from her wounds on his shorts and socks? One drop of Teresa's blood on Henry's sock indicated that it had dropped from above. The defense would say that this could have happened when Henry was standing on the ground floor and Teresa's blood was flowing over the stairs onto the floor below. The state argued that paramedics had described the blood flow from Teresa's body as being like a waterfall when it was moved. Is it possible that Henry was standing right below the stairs and a single drop of blood ran into the tiles grouting and dropped down perfectly onto his sock as he stood below? Yes, it is possible, but it is highly unlikely. What is more likely is that the blood dropped onto Henry's sock while Teresa was being attacked by Henry. 
still more blood evidence would again bring into question whether Henry had ever been unconscious at all. Captain Hubert would testify that the blood from Henry's wounds did not indicate that his body had ever changed position from being upright. Dr. Butler had said that it was unlikely Henry had been able to inflict the wounds on himself with such precision in a post-ictal state, so this calls into question the severity of the seizure, if indeed it ever occurred. Another thing that makes me think that if the urination was linked to a seizure, and the seizure happened at all, it must have happened far later in the scenario than Henry claimed, is that he'd been on the toilet when he claims the attack started. In fact, video footage of the scene showed that the toilet had been used, urine was present, but not flushed. There was a significant amount of urine on Henry's shorts, both front and back, so there would have had to have been a period of time between him sitting on the toilet and him allegedly having the seizures for urine to build up in his bladder again. The question would remain, how had Henry received so much blood spatter to his shorts and socks and so little to his body? Captain Marius Hubert, as well as many other experts on this case, believe that during the missing hours, Henry washed himself. This, of course, would have had to have happened before the self-inflicted injuries. When I asked Captain Hubert about this, he said that it is possible to rinse a face cloth well enough that the blood will be diluted to the point that Blue Star, the liquid used to detect the presence of blood, will not react. There was DNA found in one specific area of the shower in the ensuite bathroom that Henry and Rudy shared, that reacted to Blue Star indicating that it was blood. After reading about this evidence, I asked Captain Marius Hubert if my understanding of this evidence was correct, and this is what he had to say. Quote, When I examined the shower for possible blood using Blue Star or hemistics, which reacts with the iron in the blood, there was only a positive reaction in a specific area. The blood was detected on the shower floor where the wall and floor meet. One swab was taken from the area with the highest chemiluminescence reaction. The DNA profiles obtained from swabs collected contained DNA from Teresa, Henry and Rudy. Henry and Rudy's DNA could be explained because it is their shower, but Teresa's DNA is significant evidence, considering she did not use the shower. The question then is, how did Teresa's blood or DNA end up in Rudy and Henry's shower? The most plausible explanation, the positive reaction from Blue Star and the swabs collected in the area, indicates the blood of Teresa. This will be the only source which will contain Teresa's DNA in the brother's shower. Other swabs were also collected from other areas, and Teresa's DNA was not detected. The inference made from the evidence is that an object containing the blood of Teresa was cleaned within the shower, resulting in Teresa's blood in the shower. This is not a direct transfer of blood, 
because we know that Teresa was not in their shower after sustaining her injuries. With regards to Rudy and Henry's DNA in the shower, we cannot exclude the fact that the sample collected contains blood of both brothers originating from the incident. This forensic evidence may be used in conjunction with other evidence that supports an object containing Rudy and Henry and Teresa's blood being cleaned in the shower. All three had blood-shedding injuries, and Henry had blood on his shorts, but no blood on his chest, hands, arms or legs, except from his own injuries. If we look at possible skin cells from Rudy and Henry, it is true that we cannot exclude this possibility either, but this is where the state and the defence may use evidence to their own advantage and argue in court proceedings. The court will evaluate the evidence holistically and decide which scenarios may be the most plausible. End quote. The defence would argue that the mixture in the shower could have been tainted and that just because there was blood in the mixture did not mean that the DNA from Teresa came from a blood source. While skin cells cannot be counted out, the court would be informed that for the most part, the soap or body wash used in showers breaks down skin cells, and it would be unlikely to find detectable DNA from skin cells from the process of washing. And Teresa Fambradar did not use that shower. The defence would further argue that Henry and Rudy shaved in the shower, and that if it was blood that had been found there, it could have come from that. The court would find that it was highly unlikely that if someone cut themselves shaving, the blood would collect only in one small corner of the shower. There were actually three places in Henry Fambradar's bathroom that reacted for the possible presence of blood. These included his hand-washing basin, the shower door, and the inside of the shower. Even if you believe in the innocence of Henry van Bredar, it makes absolutely no sense that he would have no blood other than his own on his body, but have 67 and 17 bloodstains on his shorts and socks respectively. For me, Henry's hands tell a tale on their own. Blood was found underneath Henry's fingernails. The primary DNA donor to that blood was Rudy. The defence could easily explain this by saying that Henry had admitted to clutching the axe, which had blood on it. But what certainly does not make sense to me is that pictures of Henry in the ambulance after the murders show his hands are clean. There is no visible blood on his hands, not even on his fingertips. He doesn't mention washing his hands anywhere in the statements he gave to police or in his plea explanation in court. He talks about other mundane things like noticing that lights were on and smoking a cigarette, but he never once says anything about washing his hands. How does one have blood only under your fingernails from gripping a bloody axe and not on your hands? If you washed your hands and didn't say so, what else did you wash? The only footprints found on the scene were identified as belonging to the paramedics that attended to the victims. 
According to Henry, the attacker or attackers were wearing shoes. There was a significant amount of blood on the scene, and in order for an attacker on the top floor to flee down the stairs, they would have had to go past the pool of blood around Teresa and Marley. Henry admits that he purposefully avoided stepping in the blood, although there was a stain on his sock where he'd brushed up against a puddle. Would an attacker that was in a rush to flee from a young man that was chasing him really take the time to step around the puddles of blood? During the trial, the judge, prosecutors and defence team would visit 12 Horska Street. The house had already been sold, and the new owner had allowed access to the parties necessary to the trial, but they did not want to let the media inside. The participants start to move into the side alley where Henry claims that the intruders must have gained access and left through. At this point, Henry's briefing attorney, Lorinda van Niekak, decides to take a different route into the alley. She climbs over the back fence and easily makes it over. This is clearly to show the judge that it would be easy for anyone to gain access, and Advocate Boerter will later raise this as evidence in court. Henry van Bredaal was not supposed to testify. When the last of the state's witnesses had been called, it was the defence's turn, and by law, if their client was going to testify, he had to be first. The problem with an accused testifying last is that after all of his witnesses have gone before him, he can manipulate his evidence to match theirs. When it was time for this decision to be made, Henry's attorney told the court that he did not want to call Henry at that time, and he would prefer to see how his witnesses fared before putting his client on the stand. In the end, five of the witnesses for the defence will testify before Henry takes the stand. His demeanour during the trial has been unemotional for the most part, but he did show reactions when the injuries to his mother were discussed, and he asked to be allowed to sit elsewhere in the court when the autopsy photographs were shown. Henry tells the court that he doesn't want to sit down and prefers to stand during his testimony. As a result, he is quite far from the microphone, and it's sometimes difficult for the judge to hear him. He's often asked to repeat himself, but doesn't stutter, not even once. His accent is clearly tinged with a bit of Australian twang, but for the most part, to me at least, he sounds very much like a South African boy brought up in a predominantly English household and having attended private schools. During Henry's testimony, he will deny ever having seen the axe in the house before. He also denies that he washed anything in the shower. This would have been the perfect moment to admit that he had washed his hands, but he didn't. Henry's demeanour with his own counsel is in stark contrast to how he behaves when Advocate Galloway begins her cross-examination. While it's understandable that he would not be friendly with her, I was taken aback at how often he was sarcastic and belligerent. There were moments when he would answer her questions, and the look he gives her could have killed her on the spot if it was weaponized. 
Then, in those same moments, the judge will ask him to repeat what he said, and Henry turns his head and his entire face changes. His features soften and his tone is different in seconds. This doesn't just happen once. It happens several times during his testimony. Call me dramatic, but it's almost like watching the two faces of Henry Fumbradar. Perhaps the most surprising moment of Henry Fumbradar's testimony was when he was handed a fake axe by advocate Susan Galloway and asked to reenact the struggle with the intruder in front of the court. For journalists and others present, seeing Henry gripping the axe and realising that this was the last image that his family members may have seen was haunting. The struggle was reenacted in slow motion, of course, and many present feel that Henry is trying very hard to make his injuries fit with the movements of the alleged attacker. It would be a comical scene if it weren't part of such a horrific series of events. And at one point, he brings the axe down close to the court employee's head, and the man gets the strangest look on his face. Julian Janssen watched the scene firsthand, and he says that at points, Henry looked like a praying mantis as he tried to manipulate his body into the right positions. I must be honest, if I'd been involved in a struggle with someone after I'd just watched him axe my brother and father to death, I don't know that I'd be able to recall exactly where each of my hands went and how his body moved. Thankfully, I've never been in a situation like this to know for sure, but it seems strange that one would be able to reenact this step by step, almost two years after the fact. Judge Desai regularly asks Henry questions about his lack of assistance towards his family members on that day. When he does so, Henry's eyes often fill with tears, and on several occasions, the court is adjourned for Henry to compose himself. Henry turns 23 years old while testifying in his own defence in court. He eventually steps down, and the decision as to where Henry will spend his 24th birthday is now in Judge Desai's hands. As a result of the trial, Henry's studies have been put on hold. He missed his final exam, and it's alleged that in solidarity with him, Danielle did not attend hers either. She is still firmly by his side. The fact that an axe was used in these murders make it stand out in the public's memory. It's a very brutal and violent way of killing. When you kill someone with an axe, you're up close and personal with them. You see their pain, and you are intimately involved in their passing. An axe is an uncommon weapon in home invasions and assassinations, for these very reasons. In both cases, it is risky to get up close and personal with your victim, and such a weapon would only be chosen as a last resort, if nothing else was available. Where we do often see axes used is in family massacres. In those cases, it, it is a popular weapon because it is silent and deadly. When used with enough force and enough times, 
the injuries sustained are almost always fatal. Offenders that commit familicide want to wipe out everyone in the house. They don't want anyone escaping, and using an axe gives them the opportunity to disable and silence each victim one by one. If a gun were used, it would likely alert the other victims, and they could flee. We did see a gun used in the Steenkamp family murders in Krikostad, but their home was rural, and there was little chance that anyone else would hear, and the victims were all in one place. Even in that case, though, one victim did manage to escape before being hunted down and dragged back inside. Thankfully, murders of families like this are rare, but we did see an axe used in the Adlington family murders, which I covered in episode 34. More recently, we saw six members of the same family being axed to death in the Eastern Cape. The accused in that case is still awaiting trial, and he was also a family member. Although the sleepy town of Stellenbosch was horrified by this case, it was certainly not the first murder of a family that it had seen, and not even the first with an axe. In July 1994, the Orfa family, Peter, his wife Lida, their children, four-year-old Eulalia and six-year-old John, as well as their domestic worker, Sis Jacobs, were brutally killed with an axe in, in their home in Stellenbosch. In this case, though, the accused and eventually convicted perpetrators were not family members, but one of them was an insider to the home. Initially, police had believed that this was a murder-suicide. Peter had just lost his job, and he'd been struggling emotionally. Police soon discovered, though, that it would have been impossible for him to inflict the type of wounds he had on himself. It would eventually emerge that a young man the authors had hired to work around the home had conspired with a friend to commit a home invasion and kill the author family for whatever they could ransack from the home. The two men had waited for Sis Jacobs to come home that afternoon with the little girl, and they had hacked both to death with an axe they found in the home. They then waited four hours for Peter to come home with the little boy, and they killed both as well. An hour later, Lida arrived home. They raped and killed her with the axe. They then lined the bodies up in the lounge, stole the family's car and a few belongings, and fled the scene. It was the scenario that Henry Fumbradar had alleged to have occurred in his home 21 years later. Two intruders had come into his home, killed his entire family with an axe, and then fled. So the scenario is not that far-fetched. But it is both the similarities and the differences that we need to look at here. The Orpher family were indeed murdered by intruders with an axe in their home, but at least one of those intruders already had access to the premises. He knew the family, he knew their schedule, and he knew that they had an axe in the house. They were not random people that walked in off the street, happened to find an axe, and managed to kill an entire family. If, as Henry alleges, 
there were indeed two attackers in his home that night. Something else stands out for me. The Fanbradar scene was chaotic. There were victims everywhere. Teresa and Marley were cut down as they attempted to flee down the stairs. Rudy was surprised in his sleep, and Martin ran into the line of fire, so to speak. This speaks to a disorganized scene, and not necessarily through poor planning, but through the difficulties of one person trying to control the movements of four others. In the Orpher family murders, the scene was extremely organized. The two intruders were able to control all of the family members, and even arranged their bodies neatly afterwards. This, in my opinion at least, speaks to the type of organization that two intruders can achieve. The Orpher family murders were not planned long in advance. The two perpetrators decided on it that very morning. They didn't have a weapon, so they used an axe from inside the house. If Henry's version was true, the two intruders in his home did a very poor job of controlling their victims. The perpetrators in the Orpher family murder had intended to rob the family, and they did. They stole several items, including the family's car. Not a single item was stolen from the Funbradar home. The Funbradar attackers, according to Henry, managed to slaughter four people, and then bulked at the fifth, and ran away without accomplishing their goal. The Orpher family attackers were able to kill five people over the space of many hours. They waited in between for family members to get home. They saved the worst attack for the last victim. Which leads me to the final point I want to make about the distinctions between these two cases. Lida Orpha was raped. There was no sexual assault in the Fumbradar murders, even though it would have been so easy for the attackers to kill Henry, just as they had with the others, isolate the woman and sexually assault them. I realise, of course, that this is just one case, but I really feel it bears mentioning, because it squashes the idea that a robbery gone wrong could not be so brutal. But the point is, this was a robbery. The Funbradars were not robbed, and the Orpha murders were only achieved because someone they knew was involved. On the 21st of May, 2018, Judge Desai convicted Henry Fumbradar of the murders of his mother, father, brother, and the attempted murder of his sister. He also found Henry guilty of obstructing the ends of justice. In passing down his judgment, he based his decision on the following pertinent facts of the case. Quote, the family lived in a security estate, and there was no evidence of any unlawful entry onto Desalza at the time of the attack. While not impenetrable, a reasonably high degree of skill, knowledge of the layout, and its security system, as well as some expertise in planning, was necessary to enter Desalza. Fortuitous unlawful entry was most unlikely. No indication typical of a house robbery or burglary showing any intruders being inside the house, was evident. Four of the five Fumbradar family members 
were found brutally attacked in a similar fashion and left for dead. The family members were all in very close proximity in the sleeping areas of the house. The accused was left standing and lived through the events. He sustained injuries, supposedly inflicted by the same attacker in the same incident and in the execution of the same intent, yet markedly different in nature and extent to that of the rest of his relatives. The evidence conclusively shows that some, if not all, of his wounds were self-inflicted, with the state expert's evidence standing uncontradicted, despite the defence having access to several experts of their own. Fumbradar's version of how the incident unfolded was inconsistent with the objective evidence found on the scene. He amended material aspects of his version when he became aware of irreconcilability of his version with material aspects of the evidence. End quote. Henry stares at the judge throughout the passing down of the judgment. At times it looks like he might fall asleep, but his girlfriend would later say that she'd given him a tranquilizer to deal with the emotion of the day, and it was this that had caused him to appear sleepy. The sentencing proceedings would start on the 5th of June 2018. Both the defence and prosecution were presented with reports regarding a suicide attempt that Henry had made while at Polsmore Prison awaiting sentencing. In mitigation, his defence counsel presented a report indicating that although Henry had shown very little emotion in court, during his counselling sessions he had shown great emotional range. Also in mitigation, his defence counsel indicated that Henry was a first-time offender and only 20 years old at the time of the crimes. In aggravation, the prosecution requested that the judge give Henry an equal sentence for the attempted murder of his sister as for the murders of the rest of the family, as the extent of her injuries warranted it. Advocate Boerter did not attempt to argue for a lesser sentence for his client. He told the courts that if he did so, his client would need to admit guilt, but he maintains his innocence. The judge said that he understood that if one refused to admit guilt, then one could also not show remorse, but wondered then if he should infer that Henry had acted out of, quote, innate wickedness, end quote. Boerter would say that he knew his client's position on the matter and they had already discussed that they would not attempt to argue sentence, because in their view, it was the conviction that was errant. After many attempts to get Henry to make some arguments on his own behalf, Judge Desai conceded that he was within his rights, and that it would only make his sentencing relatively uncomplicated. Henry would have to wait two days for his sentence to be decided upon. On Thursday, the 7th of June, 2018, Henry Fumbradar stood to receive his sentence in front of Judge Desai. The judge acknowledged that Henry was a first-time offender and very young at the time of his crimes. As the judge reads out his sentencing preamble, Henry again stands and stares straight ahead. He blinks, 
but his head and face seem frozen in place. The judge tells him that his conduct warrants the severest possible penalty and that society expects it. For the first time, Henry nods in recognition. The movement of his head is almost imperceptible, and of course we will never know whether he was agreeing or simply acknowledging the judge's words. He makes the same small movement with his head again, five more times, as the judge reads out three life sentences for each of the murder charges, 15 years for the attempted murder, and 12 months for the obstruct of justice charge. In August 2018, Henry's legal team applied for leave to appeal his conviction, as well as his sentence. This appeal was denied as the court found that there was no reasonable possibility of successfully arguing the case to a different outcome. He would go on to unsuccessfully exhaust all of his appeals, with the last at the Constitutional Court of South Africa being denied in September 2019. He was originally imprisoned in the hospital wing of Polsmore Prison due to his epilepsy diagnosis, and it is unknown whether he'll remain there for the duration of his sentence. Henry Fumberdahl will be required to serve 25 years in prison before parole will be an option. If he receives parole, he will be available for it in 2043, at the age of 48. Although questions had been raised throughout the trial as to whether Henry's legal fees would be paid by the estate, Julian Janssen was eventually able to confirm that a budget of 10 million rand was set for his attorneys, and they had to stay within that amount. Julian says that Advocate Boerter told him that they had appeared on Henry's behalf pro bono on occasion in order to stay within the budget. In the Steenkamp family murder case, although Don Steenkamp was not allowed to directly inherit from the estate, it has been acknowledged that Don's grandparents, who ended up receiving all of his inheritance, will keep it in a trust and get around the bloody hand rule by allowing their grandson to inherit from them instead. In Henry Fumbrada's case, I believe the situation will be quite different. There is a surviving heir in Miley, and I doubt that her attorneys would allow her estate to be split with Henry. Some will say that Henry's guilt is in question in this case because the state failed to prove motive. Under South African criminal law, the state is not required to prove motive in court. I think that our failure to see motive in this case is down to the fact that we're looking for a reason that would warrant the execution of four family members in our minds, and therein lies the problem. We want there to be what we would deem a sufficient explanation, such as serious mental illness, a major drug problem where Henry was not in his right mind, or even abuse. Due to the magnitude of the horror of the crime, we believe that there must be a correspondingly significant motive. Surely a 20-year-old boy could not kill his family over a simple disagreement, or his parents clamping down stricter restrictions on him. Surely not. Familicides by siblings are thankfully black swan events, 
meaning they occur rarely and, when they do, make a major impact on the society around them. We've already briefly discussed the Steenkamp family murders in which Don Steenkamp murdered his father, mother and sister. The motive there was unclear too. Some said jealousy, some said inheritance. Others said that he was trying to cover up his abuse of his sister. In July 2000, Carl Gravenstein shot to death his mother, father and brother at their home in Linwood, Pretoria. He tried to claim that he had killed his brother in a rage after his brother had killed their parents. He was eventually convicted of the crimes. In January 2021, a 17-year-old Indianapolis boy was arrested for the murder of both his parents and his three siblings. One sibling was eight months pregnant at the time. He initially claimed that someone had come into his house and shot everyone, and he'd just managed to escape. He later admitted that he'd shot them because he had a disagreement with his father and felt that his siblings were being treated differently to him. In September 2019, a 14-year-old Alabama boy confessed to killing his mother, father, stepmother, and three siblings, one of which was just six months old. He called police, claiming to be hiding from intruders in his basement. Later that night, when no sign of an intruder was found, he confessed to the murders, citing a disagreement with his parents. In December 2020, a 16-year-old Virginia boy was charged with the murders of his parents and two siblings, one of which was just three years old. History is unfortunately dotted with such events, and although they are rare, they are certainly nowhere near as impossible as we'd like to think. And as is displayed in many of these cases, it is for the most part just a small disagreement that sparks such actions in a mind that is simply not thinking the same way as the rest of us. Gerard Labaskachny would be tasked with interviewing Henry van Bredaar for the state. He would later say in a radio interview that Henry had attended the police station with his attorney in order to facilitate the interview, but that Henry had eventually been advised by his attorney not to allow Gerard to interview him. Henry was never sent for a psychiatric assessment in this case, but besides a diagnosis of depression and anxiety, there do not seem to be any significant mental illnesses at play. This, of course, does not mean that Henry doesn't have a personality disorder. Personality disorders like narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder may not be seen as having contributed to a crime and therefore could not be evidence in court. Regarding Henry's lack of emotion in court, Gerard says that although it is strange and not the demeanour you would expect to see, he would not make any judgement based on this, as everyone deals with these situations differently. Gerard's partner, Bronwyn Stollars, attended the scene along with Gerard, and she has also had significant experience in family murders. She noted that in all of the family murders she'd been involved in investigating, where siblings were the perpetrators, it was always actually one of the perpetrator's siblings that had the worst injuries. 
her take on the Van Breda scene was that it was highly likely that something about Henry's relationship with Rudy played a major role in the murders. Stollars quotes research into family murders by children and says that studies have shown that there are three main reasons that children commit these types of murders. The first is that they are significantly abused, and the murder is to escape the cycle of abuse. The second possibility is a significantly mentally disturbed offender where they have suffered from some type of psychotic episode and maybe believe that their parents are trying to harm them or that they're doing the parents a favour by killing them. The third type is the offender that kills for selfish reasons. She says that most family murders fit into the third category. Stollar says that often the perpetrators may not have been significantly disciplined throughout their childhood, or they may have been given everything they wanted, and then suddenly the parents will decide that, for whatever reason, they need to clamp down on the child's behaviour and restrict them, and the child decides they need to die for this reason. We know, and Stollars and Labaskachny agree, that Henry was not abused. We know that he is not significantly mentally ill. Ergo, the motive must lie in the third category. When asked whether Henry van Breda can in fact be rehabilitated from his crimes, Gerard said that the question is, do we want to take that risk? This type of crime is so rare, and the details around the crime seem so cold and calculated, that it is very difficult to say whether he will be a danger to society when he is released. Bronwyn Stollars has spent a significant amount of time studying the outcome of cases of family murder and how such offenders respond to rehabilitation. To her knowledge, there are two offenders that have been released in South Africa after committing a family murder and spending time in jail for their crimes. One offender was released and has gone on to live a normal and productive life, as far as she can tell. And the other was released, got married, and ended up killing his wife. As with any crime, I think the probability of rehabilitation needs to be judged on a case-by-case basis. But certainly in order to work through your crime, you first need to admit to it. Stollars responds to a question about whether someone else could have been involved in the crime, and although she admits that she's not qualified to speak to the investigation itself, she says that this assumption almost always happens in family murders, especially where the perpetrator is so young. The public are horrified at the acts and the fact that the idea for these terrible things could have come from a single young mind is almost unfathomable. So we insist that there must be someone else, either in cahoots or responsible for the murders. There was absolutely no evidence that anyone else was in the Van Breda house that night. And surely if Henry had an accomplice, he would have said so, to spread the blame around. I think Stollars's point here really speaks to all of the conspiracy theories that have sprung up around this case, and also the fact that some people still think he's innocent. We don't want Henry to be guilty. 
I don't want Henry to be guilty. I don't want to think about the fact that I live in a world where someone that I love, who sleeps in my house every night, who eats with me and has known me most or all of my life, who I consider family, would be able to pick up a lethal weapon and plunge it into my skull while I sleep. I don't want to believe that, and I'm sure neither do you. So we seek alternative theories, or elaborate motives, to help us reason away, not just Henry's crime, but also to help us return our own sense of safety. One thing I must point out that was said by an unnamed family member while Henry was on trial is the following, quote, All I ask is dig deeper than the murders. Look at what happened beforehand and how he was treated. He had withdrawn from society. End quote. Now, despite the Van Breda family looking very happy and seemingly being very normal from all accounts, we cannot forget that no parent is perfect. In an attempt to correct a child's behavior or force them into a specific line of thinking or way of living their lives, parents may behave in ways that are not entirely helpful. Those corrections will also be interpreted by different children in different ways, depending on their own nature. We know with a relative sense of certainty that Henry van Breda was using drugs at some point, and it was not only Dacher. How deep he got into the hold of addiction, we do not know, but he did attend a rehab facility, and his behavior around that time indicated that the drugs had an effect on him. His parents would likely have been terrified and wanted to do anything they could to stop his downward spiral into drug addiction. I think Henry may well have been initially suspended from university for being in the possession of hard drugs. I also think that when he came back to South Africa, he may have told his parents he would return, but did not have any intention of going back to Australia. This is just my opinion, but I don't think that Henry really wanted to study the course he was doing at university. The drastic career change he seemingly had planned after his parents' death speaks to that. I think that possibly, initially, his drug-taking may have continued to some extent until his incarceration. I do think that his parents tried to control his movements and access to money in order to stop his seeming downward spiral. But I think that this was only part of the reason for Henry killing his family that night. The fact that Rudy was killed first and sustained such severe injuries, and the fact that many people spoke about how there had been jealousy between Rudy and Henry also comes into play here. Rudy and Henry were alone in Australia at the same university for a long time. Rudy may have been expected to watch over his younger brother, and even if he wasn't, when things started to go wrong with Henry, his parents would have wanted information from him when they were in a different country and needed to know what was happening. That may well have been the spark that started the fire of anger within Henry. 
We will never know what the arguments in the Van Breda house was that night. But with Rudy heading back to university soon, I am sure the family would have been discussing that, and the fact that Henry was not immediately returning around that time. There has been another theory around Henry's drug use, and that is that he owed money to someone, and it was this person that had come calling that night, or that Henry had arranged to allow someone to rob his home to pay back his debt. For me, at least, neither of these theories make sense. If Henry's drug dealer had come to the house that night to get what he was owed, he would fall in the intruder category and we know that it's highly unlikely that anyone breached the perimeter of the estate that night. Also, this is not how drug dealers operate. Killing your entire family with an axe because you owe a drug debt does not fit with the way people like that operate. Yes, they may threaten you and your family, they may also harm you and your family, but like this? In a way that would be so easy for them to get caught? I don't think any drug dealer would be willing to take that risk. And most definitely, they would not leave Henry relatively unharmed. If he'd allowed them in that night, and somehow snuck them in, and agreed to let them steal what they wanted, why would he agree to them killing his family? Why would he continue to protect them, even after receiving three life sentences? Drug addicts steal from their family all the time. If Henry was being threatened over a drug debt, all he needed to do was steal some of the many valuable items that stood around the house. No matter what theory you like to throw at this case, Martin's business connections, assassination, someone working with Henry, vindictive drug dealers or murderous intruders, you cannot deny one thing the physical evidence. As I've said before, stories can change, people's narratives and actions can be interpreted in many different ways, but in this case, the blood spoke. The physical evidence and the mountain of circumstantial evidence point to one thing. Henry van murdered his family. In the years since Henry's sentence and incarceration, Miley has gone on to finish her schooling, and she now lives a very private life, while dealing with the enormous trauma that her brother's actions have brought to her life. I think it is natural for us to be curious about Miley's thoughts around her brother at this point. As with the Steenkamp family murders, there have always been members of the Van Breda and the Toy families that have struggled to believe that Henry was guilty. We don't know on what side of that fence Marley sits, and perhaps we never will. That is her prerogative. Although her struggle and trauma have been very public, she deserves the right to live her life, and does not owe the public any answers. I wondered whether Marley had visited her brother in jail since he was incarcerated, and I asked Julian Janssen about that. Uh, Marley... I would presume would have never visited or intend to visit Henry in jail. We also know that uh, due to the court order, uh, the media cannot speculate or the media cannot report on anything regards 
to the life and future of Marley van Breda as she is in directorship under Advocate Louise Bateman. But from my knowledge, I know that and I learned that Marley hasn't been visiting Henry in jail. You must remember that after the incident, Marley, I presume, would have read the reports on the on the murder case and also the sentencing of judgment and sentencing of her brother. And by by then or by now, she would have have the knowledge that her brother attacked her family and that she fought against her brother and and miraculously survived. I don't think Marley would very soon actually visit her brother in jail. While I do find it interesting to look at other theories, and I've done my best in these episodes to address the probability of each theory out there, I'm also the type of person that puts a lot of stock in physical evidence. It is extremely difficult to fake blood and other evidence that points to you being stood in front of a person when they were receiving axe blows, if not impossible. And in any case, why would you want to? No matter what your theory around this case, you cannot deny that Henry's version does not match up with the physical evidence, and it also does not make sense on a scale of probabilities. You can suggest all the variable possibilities you like, but you cannot deny that the evidence exists. Motive is a funny thing, because what I would consider motive is not necessarily what another person would consider motive. Henry van Breda would not be the first person on earth to kill his family for personal gain either, to eliminate the person that made him feel inferior, likely through no fault of his own, or simply to free himself up of what he felt was holding him back. When Julian Janssen describes the scene of Henry, the boy described as a loner and withdrawn, walking outside his college, making people laugh, being the centre of attention in a crowd and the life of the party, an image forms in my head of someone who had just come into their own. Just as we saw Don Steenkamp also move away from that quiet boy image, after the murder of his family and become social, funny and popular, I feel like for these boys, the act of ending their families' lives was an unshackling for them. And I don't say that to presume that the victims had done anything to deserve it. We're all capable of creating our own shackles in our minds, And for some, the stories they tell themselves about how much other people are holding them back can become their reality. Taking into account all of the evidence, I think that a picture emerges of what happened in the Fambradar household that night. I think that the family had dinner and a few drinks. I don't think that Henry was overly intoxicated, but I do think he drank more than he probably should have. I think that Teresa and Marley were asleep relatively early, and Martin, Rudy and Henry had disagreed about something. Perhaps Martin had made a comment about something Henry had done, or his future, and tensions escalated. I have no doubt that Rudy would have sided with his father. 
Perhaps the argument was even about Rudy's achievements and Henry's lack of direction. Then Martin went to bed, and so did Rudy. Henry, however, stayed up, seething, thinking about all the time Rudy's achievements had made him feel less than, thinking about how he did not want to be living the life his father expected from him. In his mind at that moment, perhaps, Rudy represented everything that was wrong with his life. And as he sat down on his bed with his laptop, watching his brother sleep, he decided to fix what he felt was wrong with his story. I do think that Sasha, the dog, was sleeping in her bed, next to his. And I think that he stood up, picked up Sasha, and walked downstairs. He locked her in the garage, and then went into the pantry where the axe was. He picked it up and went to the drawer he knew contained the knives. Pulling it open, selecting a knife, and leaving the drawer slightly ajar. It is difficult to know exactly how much planning had gone into this, but I think he probably had a rough idea of what his story was going to be already. I think Henry walked upstairs, and the gentle snores of his family filled the air, and then he stood beside his brother. The anger he felt toward him came to a crescendo, and he brought the axe down on his brother's head. The first blow would have woken Rudy, but according to the blood evidence, the subsequent blows came so quickly that he would have had little time to react. He was only able to lift his hand once in an effort to protect himself. The room was dark at the time, and I wonder whether he knew that it was his brother raining blows down on him. Henry says that he called for help, but I believe that Rudy must have been able to get a scream out at some point, and this had alerted Martin. Startled out of sleep, Martin may have stumbled toward his son's room, flicked on the light, and been met with a scene of horror. I think that he really thought that there was no way Henry would attack him, so instead of tackling his son, he'd laid his body over Rudy to prevent any more harm. I wonder if he was talking to Henry in that moment, asking him to calm down, demanding to know what he had done. Then Henry did what his father never thought he would do. He brought the axe down on his father's head too. I'd always found Henry's statements about the attacker laughing strange, but perhaps that laugh was actually coming from Henry. In his mind, this was his retribution, his payback for the story he'd convinced himself of. Teresa may have awakened at the same time as Martin, Hearing Rudy cry out, she ran down the hallway, demanding to know what was going on, and she ran into an axe. Henry would have had little time to think at this point. Once he had started, he may have thought he needed to finish it. Teresa went down quickly. When she hit the floor face down, she didn't move again. With the adrenaline pumping through his veins, Henry would have been breathing fast now, as he saw his sister running toward the staircase. 
I've always wondered why she had more defensive wounds than everyone else. Had she been awake longer? Had she woken up and heard the horrific sounds coming from the room next door to her, her mother's demand for answers, and briefly considered what she should do? Had she peered out her bedroom door and seen her mother's body on the floor and immediately run to her? Perhaps then Henry appeared with the axe, and she realised that something horrific was happening in her house. At some points, the children in the house across the road woke up. Had they heard something? A brief scream, muffled and then falling silent? Or had they just sensed something with that knack that children have for understanding more than we expect them to? I wonder if Henry had not wanted to kill Marley initially. Had he tried to reason with her, tried to calm her down, and had she, in her terror, just wanted to get away from this murderous man who used to be her big brother? Perhaps this is the explanation for the scuffle and the defensive wounds. Maybe Henry paused briefly before attacking his sister, not as sure about this attack as he had been about the others. Eventually, though, he needed to silence her, and he did so with his axe. I think in the moments after the attacks were concluded, Henry's brain was buzzing with information. At this point, he may have looked down at his body and hands and seen the blood. He's a smart young man, and he would have known that changing clothing would not make sense. The police would ask why he'd taken the time to change. But he knew that the amount of blood on him would also not make sense, so he had to clean up a bit and he did. While he was doing so, he may have noticed that the axe was still covered in blood and wanted to clean the handle, so that when he touched it again, it didn't leave blood on his hands. Perhaps this is when he rinsed the handle off in the shower. With his body now clean, he put the same clothes back on and put the next part of his plan in motion. He grabbed the knife and made the incisions on his arms and chest. He knew he had to stab himself, but it was painful, and perhaps he could only get the knife in very superficially. Then he dropped the knife where it was found. Possibly still enraged at his brother, Henry dragged Rudy out of his bed and onto the floor. He would have washed his hands again after that, but failed to clean under his nails which is where Rudy's blood would later be found. Henry may have exited the bathroom again and stepped over his brother's body, noticing that his own duvet had a knife-shaped blood stain on it. He pulled the duvet off the bed, bundled it up, and dumped it onto a pool of his brother's blood. I think he picked up the axe, and in order to support his narrative of chasing the attackers, he walked down to the first landing and slammed the axe into the wall, allowing it to fall to the floor where it remained. Then he went downstairs. Henry grabbed his cell phone and googled and tried to phone his girlfriend. I've always wondered how different this case may have gone if she had answered. When she didn't, 
He possibly considered the fact that he needed to show some entrance route for the attackers he would blame, so he opened the kitchen door and left it like that for the police to find. Then he googled some numbers on his cell phone. I think it's at this point that Henry realised that Miley was not dead. He admits seeing her move, and he knew he could not call emergency services at that moment. Instead, he went downstairs and smoked a cigarette, and then perhaps another. I think that there is a possibility that Henry had a seizure at some point while he was waiting for his sister to die. I don't think that the seizure was anywhere near the severity it was made out to be, if it happened. And it happened much closer to the time he called emergency services. If at all... He may have been unconscious for a few minutes out of the two hours and forty minutes. When he came to, he realised that the family's domestic worker was going to be arriving for work soon, and although he may have been slightly confused, he was capable of recalling his plan. Although Miley was still occasionally moving, he knew that he had no choice but to take action then. If he didn't, he would have no explanation for having done nothing when the domestic worker arrived. I think that Henry relayed a specific story to the police, and then when he saw the docket and realised that the physical evidence was not going to line up with his story, he tried to insert other details that would help to explain these discrepancies. I do wonder what must have gone through Henry's mind in those weeks that his sister lay in hospital. He would have had no idea that she'd had no memory of the event, and it must have felt like it was just a matter of time until she spoke and pointed the finger at him. Covering this case has been a very new experience for me. I've never had quite as much information available before and it was quite a treat to be able to go so deep into every aspect of the case. With as much information as has been available, though, it would be easy to forget the victims in the story. Rudy Fumbradar was just starting out his adult life. He was doing really well at university, and he would no doubt have been as successful as his father. Rudy was in a relationship at the time of his death, His girlfriend had visited him in South Africa just before the murders. She had thankfully returned to Australia before the horrific night in question. I cannot imagine how hard it must have been for her to receive the news that the family she had spent time with just a week before, and the man she had loved, had almost all been brutally murdered in the home she had slept in. On his Facebook profile, which is now memorialised, Rudy's university friends express how much they miss the young man and how difficult his loss has been. I don't think that Rudy would ever have purposefully set out to make his brother feel less than him. He was just living his life to the best of his ability, and he could not control what narrative his younger brother created in his head. Martin Fumbradar died protecting his son. He clearly loved Henry and had faith in him to do the right thing. Even when he was standing with a bloodied axe in his hand, 
because he covered his older son's body with his own, trusting that he would not receive the same treatment. Sadly, that trust was horribly misplaced. Martin may not have been perfect, as none of us are, but I think that final gesture symbolized who he was as a man. To his last breath, Martin van Bredaar was a protective father who wanted no harm to come to either of his sons. Teresa van Bredaar likely made her mistakes in parenting too, as every parent does. Perhaps she was too lenient on Henry at times, and maybe that made it difficult to crack down on him when he really needed it. I can only hope that from where she stood in the hallway, she could not see her oldest son's mangled body, nor her husband as he lay over him. I hope that it all happened too fast for her to be able to process the fact that it was her child, the boy that she had given birth to and cradled as a baby, whose first steps she'd marveled at, and who she had tried so hard to guide in life that stood before her, his face spattered with the blood of his family and an axe in his hand. I hope that Teresa had no inkling of the horrific betrayal that befell her and her family that day. But a mother knows her child, and recognition takes just seconds. Marley's survival astounded everyone and as much as her memory of the events that led to her injuries would have been valuable to the justice system, I'm glad that she has no memory of it. It is bad enough that she has to live with the knowledge that it happened, that she has to rebuild her life around a new normal, where she is an orphan, and she's lost her oldest brother, and for the most part, her youngest brother too. I think that the fighting spirits that aided her recovery will see her through her darkest days, but there will be many moments when her trauma overcomes her. Her father will never walk her down her aisle at her wedding. She will never be able to phone her mom for advice when she becomes a a mom herself one day, if that's her choice. Although I have no doubt that Marley is grateful to be alive, Her life will always be separated into two parts, before the 27th of January 2015 and after. I do hope that Henry is capable of admitting his guilt one day. In 22 years, he may have no choice if he wants to spend any of his days outside of the walls of Polesmore Prison. This case has astounded the public for many reasons, but I think the most significant of those is that it has reminded us once again that so often danger is not represented by the suspicious-looking man on the street. So often, the most significant danger lives inside the walls of our own homes, in the smiles of our loved ones, and in the hands of those we trust the most. I do hope that you've enjoyed the four parts of episode 52, The Fun Bradar Family Murders.
I have had a great response to the first three parts, and I certainly hope to be able to do future episodes in as much detail as well. I'd like to thank Julian Janssen and Captain Marius Hubert for their invaluable input into the four parts of this case. It was an absolute honour to be able to get first-hand information from people involved in this case at grassroots level. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 